All right, good morning. Uh, if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning, Acts chapter 2. I want to thank you for those of you who were uh, praying for me last week. Um, I think I must have ate something bad and was not doing well on Sunday. And it wasn't anything to do with my wife's cooking. So just so you know, um, but I'm feeling much better this week. Uh, some of you seem still a bit hesitant because you're like halfway back to the auditorium. But uh, but thank you guys for your prayers and your thoughts and concer- concerns for me. Um, Acts chapter 2, uh, verse. we're going to begin with verse 42 and read down through verse 47. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. The Bible says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship to to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were coming were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from the house from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning that we could gather here to worship you. God, and as the last song said, we ask that you bind us together now as we look into your word. Lord, help us to to understand the truth that you have in your word that you've given to us. Help us to understand what it means to us, how it applies to our lives. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, that we might gather together here as a group of believers. And so again, I ask that you be with us now as we look into your word. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So we are wrapping up our series on uh, I Love the Church, um, and we have one final sermon here, of course, today. And as a way of introduction, I want to do a little um, quiz type thing. So I'm going to show you a picture of a person, a place, a thing, or something, and you can just kind of shout it out. What are they known for? What is that person? What is that place? What is that thing? What are they known for? All right, so let's try this. See how it goes. This is a picture of, of Pittsburgh. Winners. Winners. Oh, okay. All right. Wasn't the first thing that came to my mind, but uh, <laughs> all right. Winners. Anything else? There are three, three rivers. Somebody say something else. Was it? Steel. steel. That's right. The Steel Empire. That's right. And the Steelers and the Pirates and all those. Okay. All right. Good. Second one. This is General George Custer. Defeat. Defeat. Okay. A little bighorn. All right. A famous last stand. Little, little do people know he was a very good Civil War officer. He was an amazing officer in the Civil War. But he's known for what happened at Little Bighorn. Right? All right. Apple, okay. <laughs> That's what that is, yeah. 
What else are they known for? The computers, the iPads, the pretty much i everything, the iPhone. Um, probably good quality technology, I guess, would be probably be one. All right. No? Some people don't like? Okay. All right. Uh, there'll be disagreements among that one, I guess. All right. <laughs> insurance. All right. <laughs> Car insurance. What's that? The government? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> insurance. Funny commercials, maybe, for the kids out there. Watch the Geico commercials. All right. How about this one? Freedom. Okay. All right. Anything else? New York, all right. Susquehanna. <laughs> we have an original thinker out there. <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> Christmas. Stealing Christmas, right? Yeah. What's that? Sin. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yep. He had quite a few sins. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Okay, now I have one more, and this one you don't need to yell out loud or anything. Just just think how this might apply. All right, what are they known for? Okay, because as we come to our final sermon series or sermon here today, we're going to be talking about the activities of the church. In other words, the characterizations. What what is the church known for? Now, if you think about all the different churches around in the area, there are a lot of different activities they do. They do um, a lot of different uh, events and things like that. Churches do a lot of different things. All right. And some of the, uh, I mean, a lot of them are good. There are some bad. You know, there's some um, people that, get, some churches that get very enamored with what's new. Um, there's some churches that get bogged down on what's been done on and on in the past. And so it's important for us to know the activities that God wants his household to be known for. Or to put it another way, what activities characterize God's household? And so as we look here in Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at the original church when God first formed the church there in Jerusalem. What were some of the activities that characterized that church? And it's not an exclusive list. It's just a list of several of the things and then try to see if, if we can take a look at how they apply to our lives. So Acts 2.42 here gives us four activities that characterize the early church. All right. And that uh, I have the verse up here. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so it gives us these four characteristics. But what do I mean by when I say this is what characterized the church? Well, at the very beginning of the verse there, we see that they were continually devoted. The Greek word used here means to persist at something, to pay persistent attention to it. In other words, the activities of God's household that we find here in this passage the early church persistently gave, continuously gave themselves over to, to doing. Now, when I, when I was young, um, I loved sports, okay? And I played organized soccer since I was a little kid, and I loved soccer. And so every chance that I got, 
we would play soccer. When my friends came over, we'd play soccer together. I'd play soccer with my siblings out in the backyard. When we had soccer practice, I loved going to soccer practice because I got to play soccer. All right. I enjoyed it. I, com- I committed myself to it. I was devoted to playing soccer. Also, when I was a kid, my mom made me take piano lessons. Um, now, uh, I, I practiced piano, uh, the minimal amount, right? There was a required amount each day that mom's like, okay, you got to practice this. And so you're ready for your lesson at the week. And, you know, I kind of delay as much as I could during that. So I did as much minimal practice as I could. I did not enjoy learning piano and I did not devote myself to it as a kid. So fast forward to today. If we were to go outside and, and gather around and let's let's make a soccer game, all right, I could I could handle myself, I I'd, I'd know what I'm doing, I could I could play well and I would enjoy it. All right, today if we were to sit me down at the piano, um I could not play. All right. I, I might be able to play like three measures of several different Disney songs and I should be able to find middle C, but but that's about it. And the difference is that I was devoted to soccer. I was devoted to sports. It was something that I continually thought about, that I was continually doing uh, and continually giving myself over to. And this is what the Greek word translated continuously devoted here in verse 42 means. There were certain activities that continually occupied their time as a church. They were committed to them. And so let's look at these four activities this morning that occupied God's household during the time when the church was first being launched, when when they first came together and gathered as believers in Jerusalem. And again, we find that in verse 42 uh, of Acts chapter 2. Um, but let me give you a little bit of background to where we're, where we're at right now. Uh, last week, Pastor Todd talked about the purpose of the church, and he used the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, talking about how Jesus uh, was sending his disciples out to go out and make other disciples, all right, and to spread the gospel throughout the world. Well, after that, Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples remained in Jerusalem praying, waiting for the Holy Spirit, which Jesus told them would come. And then on the day uh, known as that we know as Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they started preaching uh, to the crowds there in Jerusalem. All right. And, and the people in the crowds were listening and they're like, hey, we, we hear this in our own language because there were travelers coming in to to worship God, God believers from every different nation coming in to worship. And they're all like, wait, we hear what they're saying in our own language. They're like, what's going on? And then, of course, there's that one guy in the crowd that's like, are these guys drunk? You know, what's going on here? And so Peter gets up and he says to them, no, they're not, they're not drunk. All right. Here is the story. And Peter preaches this sermon at Pentecost, sharing with them the life of Jesus. All right. The purpose of the cross, the purpose of Jesus resurrection and ascension. And now their part in it, that they needed to repent, that they needed to come to God. And at that time, um, the gospel went out. There was a gospel explosion right there at Peter's sermon. And, and people came to Christ, were getting saved. 
And that in verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. All right. So people were getting saved and now they're starting to gather as believers. Okay. So what do we do now that we believe in Christ? Now that the, the gospel has come to us, that we've uh, accepted Christ, we've come to him for forgiveness. And so we, we're going to look again at these four attributes um, or activities of the church. All right. The first one is, of course, the apostles teaching. So how do we know what the apostles teaching was? Well, of course, we kind of could take a glimpse of what it was from what Peter had just said in his sermon earlier in chapter two. All right. In chapter two, verses uh, 22 and 24, Uh, Peter says this, he says, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the, by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting on, <clears throat> putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by his power. So the apostles teaching was that of the gospel. And last week, Pastor Todd uh, talked about that and, and what the gospel was. He said a holy God sending his perfect son to pay for mankind's sin by dying on the cross as our substitute so that we can turn from our sinful ways and live for him. This was the gospel that Peter was giving out. This was the gospel that the early church, the, the, the apostles were proclaiming. This was their teaching. But not only that, but Peter also taught about the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. You know, oftentimes we, we, we go to the Bible and we open up the Bible and we think, oh, they had, you know, we have New Testament and Old Testament. Well, during their time, they were living in the New Testament. All right. It wasn't written yet. So their their scripture was actually the Old Testament, um, the books of uh, Genesis all the way through Malachi. All right. And so Peter used several of these passages in his sermon talking about some of the prophets and what David said and how they applied to Jesus. So the apostles teaching included the holy, the old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures that, and how they pointed forward to Christ and tell of his coming. Uh, the apostles teaching included both the old Testament the life story and the message of Jesus. So I guess to sum it up, the apostles teaching was the teaching and preaching of God's word. Again, uh, jumping back last week, Pastor Todd preached on the great commission in revealing the purpose of God's household. Jesus said to the apostles in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus said, go out and tell them my word. Give them God's word. And so the apostles instruction was to teach the words of God. And so back to Acts chapter two, our first activity of God's household was that they were devoted to the apostles teaching. That is, they paid persistent attention to the teaching and preaching of God's word. They continually committed themselves to hearing and obeying it. So the first question to ask ourselves as individuals and as a church is, are we hungry for God's word? 
Do we have a desire, a craving to know God's word, to know who he is? Secondly, uh, we have fellowship. The second activity that characterized the early church was that of fellowship. Now, for those of you, as, as soon as I said fellowship, we're thinking potluck. All right, just, just hold on to that thought. All right, we'll get there. Um, but let's first look at what the meaning of fellowship really was in the early church. How do we know what the early church's fellowship looked like? Well, we can find some help by looking at the word um, fellowship in the Greek, koinonia. The word literally means fellow or participant. It implies an association involving close mutual relationship and involvement. All right. Paul uses this word to describe Titus, his uh, helper in 2 Corinthians 8.23, calling him my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. There was this partnership where Peter, for, where Paul and Titus were working together to minister to the Corinthian, the believers in Corinth. All right. There was this teamwork. This closeness. He also used it in Philippians 3.10 while describing his relationship to God and how it was not by all the works that he had done, but by faith in Christ so that, as he says, I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The New American Standard calls it the fellowship of his suffering. Paul said, you know, I'm, I am intimately partaking in the, what, the same kind of suffering that Christ went through. That's what he meant by fellowship. That's what he meant by sharing that suffering. It's the idea of a close participation with someone in something. This reminds me of our, the sermon series we recently had on David. And you know the story of David and Jonathan and their close-knit friendship. That even though they came from different backgrounds, different, um, different social standards, that sort of thing, they were a close knit. There was a close knit friendship, and even though some of the things going on in their lives threatened to come between them, you know, with Jonathan's father trying to hunt David down and kill him, well, that that could really put a strain on a relationship, right? When your dad's trying to kill your best friend, all right, that that can be a challenge, um, and yet their closeness. Their fellowship lasted a lifetime. The fellowship in the early church was one of harmonious unity. It was more than just talking about the weather or the local chariot races or one's favorite rabbi or ruler. All right. It was a sharing in the gospel truth that filled the apostles teaching. It was the unity of the gospel message that their common plight as sinners was remedied in the grace and love of God's God available to all. It was the sharing of one another's spiritual struggles and encouragement. And as Paul says to the churches in Galatians, Paul's instruction is bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The fellowship that they were experiencing was that of coming alongside each other, being involved in each other's lives deeper than the surface things. In fact, to the early church, their fellowship with one another drove them to sell possessions to give to those in need or share with each other what they had. Uh, as, as verse 45 says, it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the 
proceeds to all as any needed. All right, that, that's what their fellowship drove them to, to make sure that every single person in, in their group, in their church, was provided for, that they had something if they needed it, that they could borrow something if they needed it. The question for us is, what do we consider fellowship? And do we strive for fellowship as the early church did? Do we consider fellowship just chatting about our favorite local topics, like while having an ice cream social or a potluck? Or do we seek to share with each other the blessings and burdens that God has brought our way? To have the spiritual conversations that can lift others up from their discouragement or ease their pain. The conversations that share with others what God is doing in my life right now, the challenges, the blessings, and otherwise. You know, there, there are statistics out there and surveys uh, that, that tell us that being in the age of technology has really kind of set us back in having personal conversations and connecting with people. And there is truth to that, right? We, we see that in our society. We see that in ourselves. And we might be tempted to say that if we just put down the cell phone, tablets, laptops, we'd be better, we'd be better at having good spiritual conversations with others. And again, there's probably some truth to that. And listen to what this one pastor wrote um, just about, about Christianity. He said, It has become very difficult for Christian people to talk of the things of Christ to each other. They meet together in ordinary life, and they talk of everything except the deepest things of their spiritual life. And that, and that not because they have not, not deep experience— they don't do that not because they have, they're unfamiliar with the things of God and his kingdom, but because they have never learned how to help each other in mutual conversation concerning them. Those early Christians talked together of the things of their spiritual life, and there is no surer way to converse and strengthen Christian life than that of such fellowship. It's like, wow, that, that sounds familiar. I, you know, that, that makes sense. The interesting thing is that was written by G. Campbell Morgan, who was a minister, pastor and minister in the late 1800s and early 1900s, long before the technology. So having the deep spiritual conversations has been a struggle from, for the church, for Christians, for a long, long time. But the early church was continually devoting themselves to the deep fellowship with one another committing themselves to making sure that they were involved spiritually in the lives of other believers. All right, the, there's a third um, activity that the church was known for, and that is the breaking of bread. The third activity that characterized the early church was the breaking of bread. Now, if, now maybe if you're new, a little bit new to Christianity, you might be thinking, okay, I get, I get the apostles' teaching, right? You have your... your your scripture, your book, I get fellowship, getting along with each other, helping each other out. But what on earth do they mean by breaking bread, right? What, I mean, what, what, what does that exactly mean? And there seems to be several thoughts as to what this phrase means or what this activity involved. The breaking of bread could refer to the practice of communion or a communion meal that the early church dedicated and practiced as a memorial of Jesus' last supper with his disciples before his death. So just before Jesus' death at Passover, um, one final time, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And what did Passover celebrate? 
Well, Passover was a remembrance, a celebration of what happened all the way back in Egypt. Remember when Israel was slaves in Egypt um, and there was no way out. Like Pharaoh had a hold on them. The Egyptians had a hold on them. There was no way out. But God provided a way. And what, what, what they celebrate Passover for was the very last plague that God sent on Egypt was the death angel. That went throughout the whole land and killed the firstborn son of every family in Egypt. Doesn't matter if you're Israelite, Egyptian, any other families living in, in Egypt, they'd all die unless, unless they took a lamb, took the blood from the lamb, and put it on the doorpost, symbolizing that this lamb was the sacrifice, was the, the, the covering of the sins for that family. All right, and so as the angel came, um, all the, the Egyptian firstborns would die, but the Israelites, since they had that blood over their doorposts, were covered. All right, and so now Jesus, on the verge of this last Passover with his disciples, where he was about to give up himself, he was going to be the lamb that died for our sins, to cover our sins, that we might be forgiven. He said this, he said, well, Matthew writes this, um, Jesus says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And Jesus commanded them to practice this and remember this as a, as a constant remembrance of one day I will return. All right. One day I will come back for you. All right. This is a remembrance of what I've done for you and I will return. All right. We practice this bi-monthly here at the church in our communion service, remembering Jesus the price Jesus paid, the sacrifice he made, and also the fact that he promised to return. The breaking of bread, though, could also be referring to a fellowship meal. As Acts 2, as verse 46 here says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And so it seems that they were regularly, every day, having a gathering to worship God together at the temple, and then having meals together in their homes. And this would be more of a fellowship meal where each would bring something and share with the others, a.k.a. kind of our potluck, right? Sort of a thing that we do. And these became common among the early church as it spread from city to city and country to country. Now, it's possible that the breaking of bread refers both to both of these practices. One commentator, he puts it this way, he says, Well, many scholars would suggest that the phrase refers to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, uh, and others would designate it for just an opening act of a Jewish meal and just, just an ordinary celebration meal. There is a distinct possibility that it refers to both. The breaking of bread is best understood then, as he says, as a reference to the ordinary meals which the believers regularly shared, during which they remembered Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and for the establishment of the new covenant, linking with the command to linked with the command to remember Jesus and his sacrifice during these meals. 
In fact, there was a tradition that kind of took that started to take place where at the beginning of their fellowship meal, they would take the bread and break it and and um, remember Christ then. And then at the very end, they would share in wine and, and do a remembrance then as well in their meal. The good news is, though, that food has always been a favorite activity of the church. All right. <laughs> we enjoy eating together. And their meals together would focus around the fellowship with each other and the celebrating of what Christ has done on their behalf. And let me just point out that it's amazing how we get to know each other over a meal. Um, when I was in seminary, we, we attended a church, a small church down there near the seminary, and their schedule was different than what I was used to. So we would come, we'd have a Sunday school time, um, and then you'd have your morning service. And then we'd actually all have a meal downstairs together every single week. Now, the fourth Sunday, it would be like a potluck. You know, first through third Sundays, you just kind of bring your own bag lunch sort of thing. And you'd sit down with the other people of the church and just, you know, just talk and get to know them a little bit. And then after that, we'd have uh, a little bit of a, like a sermon discussion time. Okay, how does the sermon apply to our life? This sort of thing. Um, and to be honest, with fam- uh, for families with small kids... It was a challenge because that is a long time stretch for them. But the amazing thing was you really got to know the people well, very quickly. When you sit down and eat with them every single Sunday, all right, you get past the, hey, what's the, you know, how'd the Phillies do this week? You know, what, how bad was the weather? You know, that's, how was the job? That sort of thing. And you get to the deeper conversations. Now, I'm not saying you can only do that over food. Uh, I'm just saying it, 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 it's helpful. It, it's always seemed to work. Um, it worked for this church, getting to know people, sometimes more than you want to know them, but you get to know people um, deeper than the, the, the surface things. Uh, and the early church made a regular practice of breaking bread together as a church. And we do that here as well, right? We do the fifth Sunday thing. We, you know, last week we had the picnic, you know. It's, it's a time where we kind of can, can connect a little bit more. You know, you can, you can get to know a person a lot more over one meal than you can seeing them in here for a whole month of Sundays, you know, and just bumping shoulders with them in here. Um, but this was something that the early church prioritized together. All right, and finally... They were continually devoted to prayer. The fourth activity that characterized the early church was prayer. Now, depending on what version uh, you have in front of you, it may simply say prayer, as the New American Standard does, or as the ESV says, the prayers. Um, The fact is that it's plural. It could include reciting prayers. All right, so for the Jews, a lot of the prayers that they had were recited from the Old Testament, whether it was the Psalms or the prophets or other Old Testament scriptures. All right, they would recite those. All right, and and the early Christians continued to do that. Of course, many of these prayers would also find new meaning and connection to the life and work of Jesus. Um, But it can be helpful for Christians to recite written prayers when they're unsure of how to pray, right? Uh, I have a series of books in my office called Prayers for Parents, and it's just four short books. And one of them is for prayers of parents of small children, one's for teens, one's for young adults, one's for adult children. And it, it just gives you ideas of, okay, how do, I, how do I pray for my kids through these different stages in life? All right, sometimes it's just hard to know what to pray for. 
And of course, Jesus' disciples were eager to learn how to pray, asking him to teach them in Luke chapter 11. If you remember, they came to him and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. You know, it doesn't come natural for for a lot of people. How do we, you know, again, we, do, we can go back and say, okay, it's challenging to have spiritual conversations. Sometimes it's challenging just to know how to talk to God. And so Jesus taught them how to pray with the Lord's prayer. All right, and prayer was a priority for the early church. If we were to take this book of Acts here uh, and take a quick survey through it, the, disciple, the disciples waited in Jerusalem for the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of the Spirit while praying in chapter 1. All right, later on in chapter 1, they prayed during the choosing of a 12th apostle. All right, Lord, who do you want us to take Judas' Judas's spot? Uh, they were praying then. All right, in chapter 3, the healing of a lame man at one of the temple gates happened in connection with, with the prayer routine of the church leaders. All right, the, in chapter 4, the reaction of the Jerusalem church to external pressure, when pressure started coming in, when, when um, they started feeling uh, a little bit of, of pressure from the authorities, um, from Saul, um, God, they, they went to God in prayer. And God's intervention came through prayer. Prayer belonged to the fundamental priorities of the leadership of the church in chapter 6. And the mission in Samaria was accomplished by prayers from prayer for the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we also see that the conversion of Saul was linked with prayer. We constantly find prayer throughout the book of Acts. Um, the early church was greatly involved in prayer. As we find in the passage here in Acts chapter 2, verse 47 says that the church was continually praising God. In nearly every one of his letters, whether to the churches or individuals, Paul implores them to constantly pray, including Romans 12, 12 that says, be constant in prayer. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, the familiar passage that says, pray without ceasing. Uh, the pastor A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, the true success of any church is going to be prayer. We can easily deceive ourselves, but our purity and our power and our spirituality and our holiness will parallel our prayers. Constant communication with God was a staple of this early church. It was one of the primary means that they used of thanking God for what he had done showing him their dependence upon him and seeking his guidance for what lies ahead. It would be appropriate for us to ask, what role does prayer play in my life? What importance do I give to prayer? In college, um, I was... Well, growing up, my grandmother and grandfather used to go shopping once a week, and they'd occasionally get, you know, foods for us that that they knew us kids liked, all right? And so they'd, you know, we we loved Thursdays because Grandma and Grandpa would go shopping, and they'd always seem to bring us back something. But when I went off to college, um, my grandma continued to think of me. Um, and one of the things, two of the things she knew that I liked was uh, Reese's Puffs, the cereal, that's chocolate peanut butter cereal, and um, butterscotch crimpets, okay? And nearly almost every week for a while, I would receive in the mail two boxes of Reese's Puffs 
and two boxes of butterscotch crimpets. <laughs> now, even as a hungry college student, you can't go through that much every week. All right, so there was a... Basically, the top of our closet in our dorm room was up was Reese's Puffs and Butterscotch Crimpets. And I kind of became known for the fact that, hey, if, you know, if, if your room is out of food, you know, it's the middle of the night, you're out of food, you know you can come at least get a bowl of Reese's Puffs, if not a box of Reese's Puffs, all right? Other students knew where to come to if they wanted, you know, some sort of snack in the middle of the night. I became known for my Reese's Puffs and my Butterscotch Crimpets in college. All right. Uh, at the beginning of the message, uh, I displayed a picture of our church asking, asking ourselves to ask, what are we known for? And after hearing the activities that characterize the early church, I wonder how we match up. And I'm not talking so much about our church programs, although those do apply. I'm thinking about more about us, the believers, all right, the individual believers that make up this church, just like the individual believers that made up the early church in Jerusalem. Do those around us look and say, yeah, North Anvil Bible Church, boy, they're, they're all about God's word. They're all about hearing it, speaking it, living it. Or... They really care for the spiritual condition of each other and help out when others are in need. Or they are a praying church, and those people will pray for you if you need it, and they'll check up on you later to see how you're doing. They have genuine concern for each other. My hope is that's true. So we're wrapping up this series about our church. Our, our hope is that we've learned from God's Word what it is to be a church, what it is to love the church, and live as a member of that church, of that body. And today, as we look back at these four characteristics, and, and again, they're not exclusive, all right? These are not the only characteristics that are expected of a church. These are not the only uh, characteristics that a church is to be involved in. But are we a church that cares for each other? Are we a church that prioritizes God's word? Are we a church that goes to God in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.